Welcome to Wild Ideas Worth Living, a show where we talk to experts who've taken a wild idea and made it a reality so you can too. From people who have sailed around the world to those who've started thriving businesses and even broken records, some of the wildest ideas can lead to the most rewarding adventures. I'm your host, Shelby Stanger, and I hope you enjoy this show. This is episode 23 with Modern Love columnist, teacher, body surfer, and author of the new book, My Lovely Wife in the Psych Ward, Mark Lukic. This episode was brought to you by Toad & Co. Formerly called Horny Toad out of Central California, this great outdoor clothing company makes 90% of their products using eco-friendly materials, whether it's organic, plant-based, or recycled fabrics. They also have a program called Design for Good, which totally kicks ass. They take a portion of every single item they sell and put it towards exposing people with disabilities to life-changing trips in the outdoors. Their mission also aligns perfectly with having a wild idea worth living. They're all about inspiring people to live their fullest lives, and they're rabid supporters of following your passions and refusing to settle. They also have a great tagline, which is keep good company, exactly why I started Wild Ideas Worth Living. You can check out all of their amazing products, their mission, and the ambassadors of all abilities they work with at toadandco.com. Mark Lukic is a teacher, a father, a husband, a dean at a high school, and the author of the new book, My Lovely Wife in the Psych Ward. It was first accepted as an essay into the New York Times famous Modern Love column, and now is a book that just got optioned as a movie. He has an incredible story. He's also a surfer, a runner, a positive guy, and he's not afraid to share his full story, even the dark sides of it. He's got an important message about why being vulnerable is so important to living wildly. I hope you enjoy this show. All right, today we have on Mark Lukacs. Mark, welcome to Wild Ideas Worth Living. We're so excited to have you on. Hey, Shelby. I'm really, really pumped to be here. I really love the show and some of the awesome people you've gotten to interview, and I feel humbled to be on like now uh, an interviewee of Wild Ideas <laughs> Worth Living. Cool. Well, cool. Well, we'll have to thank your friend Jamal Yogis for introducing yeah, no us. Yeah, Jamal, the, one of the best guys ever. <laughs> so great. What a small world. All these writers and surfers are connected somehow. Yeah. So I yeah. want to get right into this because you just wrote a book and it's about to hit. When does it hit newsstands exactly? So it's going to be out May 2nd. May but it's available as we're talking now in mid-April. It's available for pre-sale, but it should be at bookstores and available online for real on May 2nd. Okay, so the book is called My Lovely Wife in the Psych Ward. Am I saying that right? Yep. It's a beautiful read. I laughed a little bit. I cried at the end. I read it in a day and a half, which for me is is saying a lot because I'm I'm not a fast reader. Believe it or not, I'm a writer, but I, I read terribly slow. I couldn't put that book down. So you had this wild idea of sharing a really hard personal story and then writing a book and you're about to share it with the world. First, you shared it with the New York Times. It was accepted into modern love. I really want to talk about that. But first, can you just tell us a little bit about the story? Because I don't want to give it away. So I'd rather have you tell us what it's about. Sure thing. Um, so the name, the title of the book kind of gives it away. But um, I met my wife, Julia, when we were only 18 years old and we started dating soon after meeting. And um, 
we're basically all queued up to live happily ever after for the next 60 years. And then um, when she, when we were, we're very close in age. And when she was 27 years old, she started a new job and um, got really stressed out by it in a way that was completely unexpected. And I had never seen it, never seen her act that way before. And she stopped eating and stopped sleeping. And she eventually like started having delusions and um, hearing and believing things that weren't real. So I had to take her to the emergency room where they admitted her to the psychiatric ward where she was, she was basically locked up in there for 23 days. And then when they, when she was discharged, she was still a little bit psychotic, but then was like super suicidally depressed. And that lasts for almost nine months. So we basically had like all going along smooth gravy until we were 27. And then this gigantic eruption into our lives where everything was upended. Um, like I, 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 I don't know. It's hard to say like just how out of left field this was. I remember standing in the hospital as they're like admitting her. I'm just like, how, you know, that, that talking head songs, how did I get here? Like, that's like a good song. Like, how did I get here? But I was having the bad version. Like, how did I get here? What happened here? So basically my wife has unfortunately had two subsequent hospitalizations. She's been in there three times total. And the book is about being a married couple with a major mental illness in the relationship and how we had to renegotiate some of the aspects of our marriage, um, how we've parented together through this and just how we've tried to stay healthy and balanced as best we can to try to avoid future relapses. But most of all, to make it that having a major mental illness doesn't mean that our lives need to be so disrupted. Wow. You know, what I loved about this story is, I mean, most books that I've read on mental illness are really extreme. And yeah. um, this is, you know, this is like, this is, I, I don't want to classify as extreme or not, but I completely relate to you. You know, okay. you're also a cool. surfer and your wife seems like someone I'd be really good friends with. This could happen to me. Right. And I think, I, just, I think that's actually the thing, right? Like the fact that it happened to Julia really got us realizing that, wow, mental illness truly does not care who you are. Like, it doesn't matter gender, age, race, um, class, education level, none of it. Like, anybody could be hit by this. Yeah, no, I appreciate you sharing this. On a, on a personal note, I experienced depression when I was 29, and it was the worst thing that ever happened. And I thought because I was an athlete and a surfer, I was exempt. And I know that seems really ludicrous, but I really believed I was. And it hit me really hard. Oh, and I yeah, and I think Julia, who was like 0.01 uh, GPA away from being her <laughs> high school valedictorian, wow. and who had a, almost a perfect GPA in college, I think she probably thought she was exempt from this kind of stuff too, you know? So you really never know. And that doesn't, I don't want that to sound like ominous, but more than like, you never know how many, well, there are statistics that tell you that one in four families in America confronts some sort of mental illness, that one in 10 people have a major mental illness. So like, when you're just going about your life at your job or in the water, if you're a surfer or on the trails, if you're running or whatever, you, you just kind of never know what someone else's journey might be and what their own challenges might be. You know, that's true. Whenever anybody gets really angry at me in the surf because I accidentally cut them off, which I try not to do. I just, I try to assume the worst. 
Just kidding. Right, right. You know, I, what I'm really curious is, is a lot of people have these stories they want to tell, but they're hard because it involves family. Yeah. Like you, you're writing about your wife and her most deep, yeah. dark secrets and your most deep, dark secrets. And it affects your whole family. So I guess I want to know, how did you get this wild idea to have the courage to share your story on a really big platform? I mean, first the New York Times and now this book could just take off in my opinion. Right. Well, thank you. I, um, so, you know, that's an interesting question. I think so. Like the real origins of me wanting to write about what I went through, because this is primarily about me. I mean, of course I chronicle what Julie experienced, but I can't pretend to know what she went through. Right. So the real reason I wanted to do that is because I needed Julia once she got out of her first episode, I needed her to understand what it had been like for me. Because for that nine-month time period, I had put so much energy into trying to understand what things were like for her. And you know, I read and researched like crazy, and I was always at different doctor's appointments. And it was just like my whole world was actually about her experience. And she was so consumed by her experience that she didn't even really – wasn't even really aware – of how demanding that felt to me and how exhausting and lonely and frustrating and all the other like really difficult emotions that I had to go through and do them with a smile because I'm the healthy one, right? Like I'm not the one who has to take the pills. So I'm supposed to be fine and I'm not supposed to let this stuff phase me. So like when she got out of her episode, her and I had this really big disconnect where she was like, Oh, I just want to like, live and be free and be happy. And I was like, oh, you're better. Now I can start to feel bad because I've been bottling that up for the last nine months and I need someone to just like let it out to, you know? So the writing was kind of the way for me to let her know what had happened. Um, that truly is like why I started writing this in the first place. And in that regard, I'm, I'm really happy with what I wrote because I know that Julia has such a, a richer understanding of what it was like for me to be a caregiver. And I think that through all the revisiting, I have a richer understanding of like what it was like for her, for me to care for, you know, but as far as then going public, that was, I, I, I don't know if there was any real clear turning point. I just kind of had all this writing and I was, I was emailing my parents or her parents a lot. And every now and then friends would check in and I would send these like big long email updates and one of them um, was like, you know, you should maybe consider trying to do something with this. This is a pretty compelling story. And I think that there might be an audience out there. And I agree because one of the worst feelings that I had to go through through all this was how lonely I was. Like I would, I would go on, you know, after I'd visit Julia in the hospital and then I'd go home and I'd like Google all the stuff that our doctors were talking about. And I would try to find oh, I was like, where's the book that's telling me about what I'm going through? I found a lot of books about what she was going through, but not what I was going through. And there was absolutely nothing. I mean, there's a couple support groups across the country and there's some forums, but nothing really substantial. And so I was like, you know, like clearly there are people who have gone through what I'm going through. Where is their community of support for each other? And so it kind of became a little bit of a vocation thing where I was like, you know, if I, if, if, if I was to write about this publicly, maybe down the line, someone might read this 
who is in a situation of caregiving and who feels really alone and uncertain about what to do. And maybe they might feel a little less alone, you know? And that was really ended up being why I wanted to go more public and try to get this out in essay form and then in book form. And then you asked also about like the fact that this is family, right? Like this is about Julia too. It's not just about me. And I think for her, some of the people who were most important for her recovery were people who were upfront about what they had gone, gone through. They were honest about their personal struggles. And Julia realized like, I would not have gotten this help if they hadn't taken that step of telling their difficult truth. And so when I had this idea and I talked to Julia, she's like, you know, I think we, not only you, Mark, might be able to help a caregiver, but maybe Julia might be able to help and relate to people who have also gone through depression or psychosis or any of the other things she's experienced. So I, I really think it became this like, why go public? It's like, because we need more of this. We need more of people like kind of telling the dark, scary truth so that we feel less alone when that dark, scary truth becomes our own, you know? Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And mental health is so tricky. I mean, what works for one person doesn't work for another person. I know I tried, I tried medication. It didn't work for me. I tried meditation that worked really well. doesn't work for a lot of people. At one point, headstands in the middle of the night didn't work for me. Just surfing didn't work. I tried this thing that like the Red Bull athletes used called, um, I'm drawing a blank, but it's basically neurofeedback. And that was interesting, but I found, I don't know, there's just so much out there and it's so stigmatized in the US. I found that when I was in New Zealand, Australia, countries like that, it was less stigmatized. People talked about it more. There were posters about mental health in the bathroom saying, hey, are you lonely? Are you scared? Have you ever experienced this or that? And there were signs to get help and it it was talked about a lot. I mean, there's even this group that I surf with that goes surfing on Fridays in fluorescent colors to raise awareness for mental health in Australia. But I'm wondering if you experienced that, like from writing this book and doing research, is it the United States? Are we behind in mental health or other countries ahead of us? Well, I, I think that the stigma is strong here for sure. I also think we're at a time though, where it's becoming more talked about first, like absolutely. You know, I think that we're, we're seeing more people, whether it's celebrities or just your run of the mill people who are more willing to be open about it. Like, for example, I'm a teacher and I work with high school kids who of course have their own emotional experiences. And I would say at the beginning of my career, we weren't necessarily as comfortable talking about those for fear of, I, I don't know, just like people didn't feel comfortable talking about that stuff, in, even in a professional setting where teachers might be trying to support students. And now a decade later, I feel like, yeah, we get it. That's a huge part of supporting people is being able to not just look at how they might do on a task like a job or on a paper if you're in school or as an athlete, but like, how is their emotional well-being going? You know, and there's all this more chatter about mindfulness. And I I think that's all great, but I still do think there's a lot of, like, there's still a lot of judgment around saying, oh my God, you have a mental illness. That must mean you're weak. You take medication for your mood. That's a sign of like, you just can't hack it in this country. I don't know. Like maybe it's like our Puritan work ethic thing. Maybe it's like the American myth of picking yourself up by your bootstraps and not being able to show any sign of weakness. But like what I've really learned is showing 
what might be called quote unquote weakness is actually like a really difficult form of strength. Like that kind of radical honesty is a lot stronger than putting up this facade of, oh, everything's fine. Don't worry about me. You know, like, in fact, I distinctly remember there was this woman back when we lived in San Francisco. She was a woman I met through surfing. And like, we just were kind of like surf faces in the lineup. And I saw her out walking and she was like, hey, how you doing? And I like, I was like, you know what? To be honest with you, I'm doing terribly. Like, my wife's in the hospital. This is awful. Like, I got to just tell you, I'm doing, I'm not doing good. And to this day, her and I, I think, have a really special connection because she has said to me, like, I will never forget. You just told me as it is. And I thought that was so powerful. And then later, like, she became a lot more open about some of her, like, I learned about her survival as a, 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 a victim of sexual assault. And she was, like, really open about that and started an organization about it. And I think, like, when you talk about these stories, um, you're having – you're showing strength, not weakness. And I, I, I wish more people got that, you know? I think you're right. I wrote one blog about it. I was scared to death. I almost puked when I hit send or publish. Yeah. And 500 right. people wrote right away, like, instantly. People I never thought would have mental illness. It affects so many people. Yeah. You know, I, I guess that's my question is like, it is so stigmatized. It's still kind of confusing. You know, how do you approach people who have a mental illness or people who've been in your shoes and cared for someone with a mental illness? Is it just radical honesty? Is there places you can point them to? Is it just listening? What have you learned? Uh, yeah. So like, I think that listening is probably one of the most important things. I, you know, I did... I've done some work as a writer and I got to write this article about the first ever suicide hotline that was formed in America. Um, it was based in San Francisco and it was actually founded by a British priest and this like really nice old man who has recently, like in the last few years he passed away. But anyway, like his whole idea behind the suicide hotline was most people, when they tell you that something's hard, the person who's listening tries to fix it because they don't like that it's hard. They're, they're uncomfortable that it's hard and they don't know what to do with it except try to problem solve it. And that's not helping anybody, you know, mm. instead, instead, if something's hard, one of the best things you can do is just let them give voice to it, like honor the reality of their struggle by hearing it and not passing judgment and not trying to tell them it's going to be okay or fix it. Those conversations are later when that's what they want. But when they're in a time of like really in the whatever emotion or fear it might be, you just got to hear them out, you know, and that like counts for someone who's a caregiver like me or someone who's faced depression or any of the other symptoms of mental illness. You know, I think that's like one of the absolute biggest things that I've ever that I've learned through all this. They called it you know, what they called it was exquisite listening. Right. And I find that like such a beautiful phrase because I mean, think about how often we're in the day and like how much time do people actually spend truly listening to each other, you know, and it's, it's really not that much. And that's one of the reasons I'm like really pumped to be talking to you now is because I know we're like really trying to listen to each other, you know? (laughs) It's true. I mean, now that I can't see you through Skype, I mean, I love podcasting because it, it requires I feel like my conversations are so rich and it's also ruined me a little bit because now I have a terrible time going to parties. I find the conversations so mundane and I'm totally judgy. So 
it's not perfect, but, but I love that you say exquisite listening. I think that's so important. And, you know, I'd listened to one of your Ted talks, uh, that you'd given years ago, but you talk about how we don't really have to respond or listen in daily life. Like with Twitter, you had said something like you don't have to respond to a tweet. I'll, I'll let you kind of take this away because you said it very eloquently, but do you remember, do you remember that? Or I just listened to it. I so do. It was great. Yeah. I mean like, so there's the concept of ghosting, right? Which is like, you can just check out. And I think a lot of us have accepted through our digital lives, how much you can check out recently. The New Yorker had this funny thing where they were like fake excuses for why it took you a while to respond to an email. Like we all know that we're reading each other's email constantly. We just might not respond because we, for whatever reason, given each other this permission that like you respond when you want to, and you don't always want to, you know, but like when you're in a room with someone, they're there, you're there. It's like immediate face to face feedback. You got to be with them. Otherwise they know it. You're not just going to, when someone's talking, you get up and walk away the way you might do it. If even you're on a phone call at the office and you hit mute for a minute to go run out and grab a drink of water and you come back and it's fine. Or certainly if you're like scrolling Twitter and you're like, I don't really want to read Twitter anymore. I'm going to step out of this conversation for an hour or a week or however long you want to be gone. It keeps going without you. But in a face-to-face one-on-one commitment to another person who's there, whether it's through like a long-term relationship, like my marriage with my wife, or even just like the person you're sitting next to on the bus who you start talking to, like you're in that moment together, really engaging in a way that I think our digital lives is like totally distorting. Can we talk about that? You know, commitment, yeah. commitment, sacrifice, patience. Are those, yeah. those have to have been three of the things that you've, you've had to have. Yeah. <laughs> I, so I, I would say that commitment is, it, it's, I kind of am I kind of like have a crush on the concept of commitment because <laughs> I think that it's, it's really, really underemphasized in our culture, you know? Um, the people who I admire most are the people who have said, this is not, not as they've of course changed throughout their life. And I'm not saying that like you need to be the same person and be static, but instead that like you make a promise to another person or to an idea, for example, um, the two longest lasting commitments in my life are that when I was in fifth grade, 10 years old, I decided I wasn't going to drink alcohol and I'm 34 now. And I've upheld that promise for 24 years. Right. And then the other longest commitment is to my wife, Julia, who I started dating 16 years ago. And since then we've stayed together. Um, I think that that I, I kind of forgot where I was going with this answer, except that like, I, that's, it's just so important to me because it becomes kind of the the anchor of my identity. It also becomes the, like, it helps me know, it keeps me in check about what I think I can and can't do in my life. You know, like there was a time when I just, I realized I was in fifth grade. I was living in Japan. My kids started going to, my friends started going to bars and I was like, I don't want that lifestyle. That lifestyle is not for me. And I believed it so deeply and every now, every time I revisit it, I like keep jumping back into that belief that like, you know what? I have a pretty darn good time without alcohol. I don't need it. I'm going to stay away from it. 
And like when I fell in love with Julia, I loved her so deeply. And of course, that's evolved over time, especially through her illness. But I keep trying to go back and revisit and saying, I, I got to go back and re like focus on why we got and fell in love in the first place, why we wanted to be together in the first place. And just keep writing it out, you know, because so much of our other aspects of our life, we can just drop out of, you know, like, especially kind of our generation, Shelby, I hope you don't mind me assuming your age, but I think you're probably in my generation. I'm in your generation. I've got a year on you. I'm maybe two years on you. (laughs) But like, how many times do people our age change jobs? And that's okay. Like, we're trying to find better jobs, but like, our parents, they had a job and probably stuck for it for much of, if not most of their career. You know, and I think like we keep going on further and further where commitment is less and less important. But like when I think of like all the ancient teachings of various different religions and philosophers, like the idea of being committed to something and sticking with it feels so fundamental to the human experience to me. And I feel like we're drifting away from it. And so, yeah, it's a really important concept to me. That commitment's a big one. And and I, I appreciate you sharing with me with that. You know, one thing I thought that was really interesting of you is I meet so many writers like myself who just do exactly what you said not to do, quit their job <laughs> to go pursue something else. Like I've done that. I quit my job to be a writer and, and I've committed to freelance writing for nine years, but it's really not an easy road. So I really right. like the fact that you're a writer, but you have a real job. Can you tell me, well, your teacher or your Yeah, your so I'm a high school teacher. I'm also the dean of the ninth grade of my school, which means I like help with the ninth grade transition for students and parents. But to be perfectly transparent, I quit teaching uh, for a few years. Now, granted, this was while Julie was sick. I stepped away from teaching to take care of her. And then when I came back and finished the semester, I was just kind of like burned out on being responsible for so many people that I stepped away. And in fact, I, I tried my hand as a freelance writer, but I knew that deep down inside, like I am meant to, to work with high school kids. That's just what I do best. It's where I'm at my best professionally. And so I want to keep writing. I love writing. I think it's an awesome, it's funny. Some of my friends have said, you like writing because it's teaching just not to (laughs) a, a classroom, but to like a different audience. And that's exactly right. Like I really, know that's what I want. It's how I like to spend my time. And so I'm going to keep sticking with teaching and hopefully make space for uh, writing on the side as best I can. The only problem is like having a real job and also like trying to write a book, for example, means a lot of late nights. It means a lot of working through the weekend. It means um, kind of trying to do two jobs at once, which has felt pretty stressful at times, but um, ultimately very rewarding. Yeah. So you're a teacher, you work with teen, I'm guessing boys and girls or is just boys. Okay. Boys and girls. What advice do you give to them most often? Uh, I, I would say for my, for my teenagers, I try to like in high school right now, the, the frenzy of getting into college is, I think that's like, we're like kind of at a crisis in this country about how much we obsess with getting into college for high school kids and high school ends up becoming like an ends to a mean and kids really get themselves super worked up about things. And I try to remind high school students that like this, this is the end right now. Like this isn't a means to get to college. This is the moment. Don't worry about it so much. Like what your GPA, what you get on this essay 
for this project doesn't really matter that much in the grand scheme of things. What matters is like, are you taking care of yourself? Are you being good to the people around you? Are you making the most of your friendships with your teachers and your, and your peers? And so it's, it's really about like, just like trying to underemphasize the next step per se, and instead focus on this step. And I think that's probably why I've gravitated towards working with ninth graders because 11th to 12th graders are so focused on college, but ninth graders are so new to high school and they're like really overwhelmed by it. And I just try to help them really settle into like, let's focus on being here together, making the best of this moment. Um, and this year. Well, that's such good advice. I have my, both my parents were college professors, so I had no Uh choice but to go to college. I mean, yeah, it was, of course. And it, and it sucked. Like, I tried so hard to get into, like, every Ivy League school, and I was such a nerd. I wish I didn't study. I mean, if I could go back and tell my 15-year-old self one thing, it would have been, like, just care less about all these tests when you're in high school because they mean jack. I mean, it's important to do well in school, but I agree with you. We, we do take the college thing a little too seriously. So on a lighter note, I want to talk to you about surfing and running. You know, these are two yes. activities – I'm a huge fan of, you're a huge fan of, how do they fit into your life, you know, between writing, caretaking, living? So I grew up in Delaware and, um, Great my surfing. dad was a, yeah, <laughs> there is surfing in, no, there I is know, surfing in Delaware. I know, yeah, and I know. Especially Maryland nearby. And so my dad, my dad was a Delaware surfer yes. uh, in his teens. And so he had us on boogie boards and body surfing when we were young. And so I always had the beach thing in my blood, right? Like I loved surfing with my dad and spending all summer at the beach. Um, and then when Julie and I got married, we moved to California to San Francisco. And I was like, we are living by the beach. I don't care that the outer sunset is like foggy. And at the time it's, it's a very cool hip neighborhood now. But when we moved here, it was very uncool and like really sleepy. Um, so we moved a few blocks from the beach and I surfed in my first year in California, probably as much as I had in my whole life up to that point combined and um, just got so into it. And then interestingly got really back into body surfing. I, even though I grew up in small wave Delaware, I always amongst my friends always wanted to go bigger and I found the thrill of body surfing, especially big wave body surfing at Ocean Beach to be exhilarating in a way that I like, it's one of the best thrills is like taking off on a 15 foot wave that's really hollow and just like holding a high line so that you don't get too far out in front of the lip for it to break on your back. But instead, just like getting up there, getting super deep barrel, hopefully coming out, maybe not. But either way, having like a really amazing barrel for a few seconds, that is absolutely one of my favorite things to do. And thankfully, like it was my therapy when Julia was sick and we were living in the beach. Um, she, when she was in the hospital, I would spend time in the ocean. When she was home, she was in an outpatient program and would go to like group therapy and stuff like that for a few hours every other day. And that became my few hours to get in the water. And to just kind of decompress, you know, um, then we had a child, my, you know, surfing gets put way on the back burner when you become a new parent. Um, but for me, I know that's temporarily on the back burner because my son, who's almost five, 
he's already totally hooked on it. Like we go down, I have a soft top for him. I push him into waves. He loves it. And I know it's only a few more years before he's going to be waking me up to go surf on the weekends. And I, I really can't wait for that. But, um, when we, we then moved to the East Bay and the ocean became much further away, it's only 45 minutes and no traffic, but there's never no traffic here. And so it can be a real grind to get out to the beach. And I had to find something different. And I really fell in love with trail running, not, not so much road running. I'm not really into that, but like the school that I work at is at the base of a, a Mount Diablo. It's like literally a backyard or fence is Mount Mount Diablo State Park and where we live here in the East Bay there's a bunch of really amazing open space parks and I just go out there and run up and down hills and get lost and sweat during the summer and just really really love it and that too has felt like it's become kind of my my way to process my way like when things feel super stressful either because Julia's not doing well or I've, even if it's in a time when she's doing well, like there's work stress or maybe just like parenting stress or whatever, like running is kind of my dry land baptism in the way that surfing was for me for most of my life. What does Julia think of the book? What does Julia think of the book? Um, she, she loves it. I'll be honest. And it's like so flattering to me that she does, you know, I mean, at the core, I want to make sure that she's comfortable with it. And we fought like cats and dogs through the writing of it because I'd write something and then she'd read it. She'd read it a few days later and I'm sitting there writing the next chapter and she comes storming into my office. Like, how could you write this? Are you kidding me? There's no way you can write about this, you know, but it like, we did a lot of negotiating about what was in and what wasn't in. And, um, now I think that, the way she's talked about it, it's just she can tell that I love her a lot when she reads the book, and that's why I think she likes it. You can think, tell it's it's such it's a, a beautiful just, book. Well, it's just a long it's just a long love letter to her that like, you know, hey, I love you a lot, and this sucked that this happened, but because we love each other, it's going to be okay. So your wife you know? is also she's stunning looking from pictures. And you seem I like agree. a pretty good looking guy. So I'm curious, who's who's going to play you guys in the movie? Has it been optioned um, yet? Talks? Uh, so to be perfectly honest with you, we are in talks to option the movie. I knew yeah. it. Yeah. Which gets, of course, like really you, your imagination runs away with you um, on that. Julia insists that I feel sort of sheepish saying this, but she insists that Ryan Gosling has to play me. Well, you kind of look like Ryan Gosling. So it's it's fair enough. She keeps saying that. And then she, I mean, I don't know back. It's funny. It's another movie about mental illness, but like I thought that the movie, a beautiful mind with Russell Crowe and Jennifer Connelly, like the young Jennifer Connelly, when they met in, when she was in college, that I, Julia, there's just something so Julia about, how she looked. And so I always thought that, but Jennifer Connelly's like gotten really old. And so I don't really know who would play Julia. I think she's the better person to ask about this because she loves movies and this kind of stuff. But it is, it's really exciting to think that this is a possibility, but like we, I, I really try to not get too carried away by it and, and just focus on the, what's like the reality that there's actually a book out. I'm still kind of shocked that there's actually going to be a book out there that I wrote. 
And whatever happens from there is just kind of icing on the cake for me. Well, I have to just tell you a personal story. When I was at Emory, we interviewed Sylvia Nasser, who wrote the story that was optioned for A Beautiful Mind in class. Okay. Okay. And she was talking. We're like, hey, so so is it going to be a movie? And she's like, yeah, yeah, they're in talks with it. But who knows all these Hollywood people? And, you know, now it won an Oscar. And I know. you just never know. Film, so. and, and I just remember asking her that question. And Hey, so I will keep my you're, – you're giving me reason to stay optimistic then, okay? <laughs> I would stay optimistic. It's a good story. I think, I think it could be a movie. So you guys are the couple that Jamal Yogis talked about in The Fear Project, right? Because when I read yeah, The Fear Project, there's a couple that is dealing with mental health, correct? Yeah, yeah that's right. In fact, Jamal in that book described me in a way – that I think is the best description. He called me, he said I was bouncing around like Tigger. And that to me is like, yep, you nailed it on the head. I'm pretty much like a hyperactive, kind of obnoxiously positive guy um, who's up for anything. But yeah, we are, it was, he was really kind to want to include us and sort of confronting our fear in his, in his book. So I don't even know when in, in this, where were you guys? Had Julia only had one hospitalization when that? Yeah. So at that point, Julia had had one hospitalization. That was where I was beginning to try to write a book and get it published. And that's when the modern love piece happened. Got it. Uh, the modern, the modern love piece came out after Julia had only had one hospitalization. And that, to be honest with you, that led to a lot of interest. Um, I got an agent. We put together a manuscript and sent it out, but it didn't get sold. Um, and, I was really frustrated. My agent was really confused by it because he's like, oh, this is, you know, I would have thought this definitely would have got bought. I don't know what happened. But looking back, there's no question about it. It was the right I'm, – I'm, I'm really relieved that it did because the story, the plot thickened twofold. A, we became parents and B, uh, Julie got sick again. Like she was back in the hospital. And so that book that I wrote at the time of Modern Love just – was really only about the two of us and only about one episode and kind of this assumption that it was going to be a one and done deal, but instead it's become a recurring thing. And that obviously has had us re-examining her health in a totally different way. And then not to mention the fact that we've got a little boy, you know, and, and how that, I mean, Jonas was five months old when Julia was hospitalized the second time and then two and a half years old uh, during the third hospitalization. So he, and how it feels to be a father while trying trying to be a husband plays a big part in the book as well, which wouldn't have all existed at that time when Jamal was writing about us in the Fear Project. Yeah, and and so you know, there's so many people who just want to get in that modern love column. I have some friends who've tried <laughs> and gotten that little rejection letter. How, yeah. how did you do it? Can you just tell me just a little bit about the process? Well, yeah, I actually I just. I just submitted an essay. You know, I did the standard thing. I, I made sure it was within the word line, word limit. And um, I heard back from Dan Jones like four days after I submitted it. And I was really surprised how quickly I heard back. So you sent and, the full uh, essay. I sent the full essay. And, you know, Shelby, to be honest, like, I mean, I know that the fact, for example, that I'm a male is – they do not have a lot of male writers who submit to modern love. It's a predominantly female mm. readership and writership. And so like he, he said that to me point blank. He's like, it's really rare to hear 
not just a relationship story from the male point of view, but especially a caregiving story from the male point of view. And so I, I, didn't, I kind of had this niche that hadn't really been explored in the column before. And um, I mean, that was, that continues to be like one of the most defining moments of my life. Um, it changed, it, it truly changed everything. I, I, I honestly think that without Modern Love, I probably would have just written a really long Word document that Julia would have read, which would have helped out our marriage, you know? And I would have considered it a success because that's what the goal was. But with Modern Love, like, first off, I can send that clip as like the first line of any email that <laughs> I'm sending true. around, right? It's pretty good. And, and the New York Times opened yeah, some it's doors. You have on your resume, right? And, um, yeah, and, and, and it's been cool that like it was even included on their podcast and Mark Duplass read the essay, which he did such an awesome job. And I'm a huge fan of his work anyway. And so the fact that like he picked my essay to read, I'm just like, God, it's so cool, you know? Like, and he, it sounds so good when he reads it. I was like, wow, I can't believe I wrote this thing. Oh, that's cool. We'll have to link to that yeah. in the show notes. I'm excited to listen yeah. to it. I'm almost at a loss of what I was going to ask you next. It's okay. No, Modern Love. So – Actually, I was I was reading something you wrote for the writing pad about what makes a good essay. And there's a big difference between reading an es- writing an essay and writing a book. Like yeah. I'm I'm really okay with writing 1500 words, but a book is yeah. just a monster. Can you talk about one what makes a good essay and then two yeah. what makes a good book and the differences? There's a lot of writers I, who listen to this podcast. Yeah, I think that's a great question. So I think an essay has to be at the core about one story and one idea. You know, I, I think that's like at the, at the heart of it. Um, so you have to have like a scene and you have to have some big insight from that scene. And then you're going to have to like, you know, put us in the scene and then get us there by giving us some background and tease out how you had this epiphany. But like, it's really a one moment thing. A book is so much different. You know, when I sat down to write the book the first time around, I just thought, I'll just sit down and type it out. And I thought that I could string these scenes together. Um, but I don't think I did a good job with it, to be honest with you. And when I worked with an editor to help structure the book, what we did is we kind of actually did an expanded version of an essay where I had these little note cards and each note card was a scene. And it's like, we know that, this is a scene that I know needs to be in the book. And I, I, I must have filled out like 70 or 80 note cards. And we kind of organized them. Okay, like, okay, how would this scene lead to the next? And how would this lead to the next? And then from the way we organized it, we decided that it was going to be, and this is actually pretty common in memoirs, but we were going to do it where the chapter doesn't isn't necessarily like one entire flowing chapter, but instead there's going to be a lot of breaks in between that let you know you're making a jump in time and space where it's a scene, a scene, a scene, a scene, a scene. The difference is though, of course, like you need to have a big picture for a book, right? It can't literally just be 70 or 80 unconnected scenes. There needs to be a thread that unites them and ties it all together and and comes back and goes away and all that other stuff. So there's an added layer of complexity, but that's really what I think a good personal essay is at its core. It's one moment one idea and just build from there about how you got to that moment and how you got to that idea. And then I read, you said something about, you got to know when to push on the pedal 
and and kind of slow down. Yeah, I think that like this is something where my first draft of the book really suffered was everything felt so immediate and important that I had to deal with it then. Like I needed to tell every single detail of Julia's illness and hospitalization. And with like the benefit of time and and moving away from it and like what stuck with my memory became the stuff that was actually important and the stuff that I maybe didn't remember as much, clearly that wasn't as important. So that became kind of like my barometer for, you know what, I can sort of rush through this. This isn't as essential as I initially thought, but no, this is a moment where I really need to just like make this feel super vivid because that moment was so big for me. I absolutely have to try to replicate it in full for a reader to, to, to get it, you know? So how did you get good at writing? Did you take a class? Did you work with editors? Like, how did you do it? So I don't actually, I'm going to be totally honest. I don't think I'm that good at writing and I'm not fishing for a compliment here. I am. I think that I have a pretty unique story and I think I've been able to tell it in a way that's compelling, but I don't have any illusions that I am like the next great writing talent. I think instead I just, I care a lot about what my family went through and I've thought about it a lot and I wanted to make it accessible to people. I think any, I, I really have to give a lot of credit to people who have edited me and who have given me advice along the way and who have assigned me work so that I could practice, you know, like I, I was a history major in college. I wasn't writing. I don't have an MFA. I was just like writing academic papers and then some friends let me do some, like I did a little blogging and then I wrote for a couple other friends blogs and then just like started to slowly do a little bit more writing. And that just practice of like, what, it, what is a beginning, middle end? And what, what does, what do people actually care about compared to what I think they care about? And, how do I filter out what is essential and not as essential and all these other things. And that just came from like a couple really, really patient, amazing editors. Mm. I feel like there's a lot of great writers up in your hood, your neighborhood. I've interviewed a bunch up well, there. Yeah. So to be honest with you, that's like another kind of factor in this story is like, I think that being a surfer at Ocean Beach is another reason that this all happened for me. Through that, I met a guy named Brian Lamb, who is like one of my mentors and closest friends. He is he ran Gizmodo for a while. Now he runs this website called The Wirecutter, which does reviews, and he knows everybody in media. And he actually has assigned me a lot of work. I met Liz Weil and Dan Duane, an amazing writing couple. Liz actually oh, yeah. edited. Liz edited my Pacific Standard essay, and she also edited the book. Um, I met Jamal through this. I met Matt Warshaw through surfing. Like, because the Ocean Beach Surf Community community is so uniquely uh, intellectual and creative, I think that you're seeing more of those types of surf communities. But there's something about Ocean Beach. It's like on the water, the 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 intelligence level is so high. And it's so cool. I, I, I met these people as surfers who then were unbelievably generous to kind of nurture me and help connect me with different people and push my career along. 
And yeah, I, I, I feel really lucky to have been a surfer in that community so that I could meet some of the amazing people that I did. That couple, like Daniel Duane and his wife, she's written some hilarious stories in the New York Times. There was one about Sean White that was awesome. Yeah, she is great. Yeah, I call her Saint Liz because I like adore everything about her. And she is, she's the editor who helped me lay out those cards and structure the book and cut the essential from the non-essential and all that other stuff. Yeah. Well, those are good mentors to have. What books yeah. do you love or have shaped you or books you gift, recommend to teens or adults? So my all-time favorite book is Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace. Um, I read that when I was in college. I've read it again. so And that's like a thousand-page book. So reading that once is a big undertaking, but I've read it twice. And I've read sections of it like way more than that. I've read a lot of his essays too. Um, recently, I'm reading... Lincoln and the Bardo by um, George Saunders, which I am just like totally, this is a pretty new book, but I am totally hooked on it. The other book, like in the last five years that I've read that I just like still can't stop thinking about is um, All the Light We Cannot See, the mm. book about World War II. Um, I also really like like Ruth Ozeki's uh, For the Time Being. I'm, I'm kind of a magical thinking kind of guy. But yeah, I would say those are currently, I'm, I'm actually in my office looking around my shelves for some of the books that I love. And I, I got to say like Infinite Jest, that's my all time. That, that is my book. You know, I, I just adore it. What's the best advice you, you can kind of give to someone who, who I guess wants to share a story that's really hard to tell, or they're worried what their family's going to think or what other people are going to think, like how, how do you help them share a story? That's hard. You know, I would say that from my experience, um, being vulnerable and genuine has been very positively received. I have not had any negative backlash. I've had people who have instead been, been grateful. They've been this like, Really, they, it gets people to open up and tell their story to me. I cannot tell you how many emails I've gotten from people that are like, thanks for your article. This is what I've gone through, you know, and then they just go. So my advice is like, if you've got something that's really hard, just kind of trust that the world needs genuine, like compassion. And if you're willing to talk about genuinely what what's hit you what's been hard for you i think that there's such a thirst for it because there's otherwise just like so much buzz and bullshit and irony and snark and trolling and all those other things where it's like too cool to care but like deep down i actually think everyone really wants to care so so much and so if you're willing to care Trust that people out there want to care too. That's that's really good advice. So I ask this to every guest. If you could go back and tell your 15-year-old self one thing. I know you fell in love at 18. So yeah. what would you tell your 15-year-old self? Um, you know, it's funny. I When you were saying like your high school experience, very similar to mine. I took way too many AP classes and stressed out about them a lot. Oh. I would tell myself – 
I was kind of, I wasn't kind of, I was very judgmental about alcohol when I was in high school. And I think I would, I was like straight edge. I'm like, go to punk. I was going to ask if you're a straight edge, like punk guy. That's funny. Absolutely. That's awesome. And so like, I think I would tell myself to give other people a break and stop feeling uh, superior about some of the choices that I had made and that I don't know what they're going through. I don't know what's gotten them to these choices. Just, just let everyone be live and let live. Take it easy, man. Don't worry about what other people are doing. Just focus on being the best you. That's good advice. Are you now like a hardcore vegan or do you have any routines or, or habits uh, you stick to? So I don't, I've never drank coffee. I've never drank alcohol. What? I've never drank. Yeah. I've never done any marijuana or cigarettes, like basically no recreational drug use at all. Uh, granted, like what I do indulge in is ice cream and milkshakes and stuff like that. So I'm not a vegan. I can let myself loose on some food decisions, but around like I would say 99.7% of what I drink is water. Well, good for you. And it, it's it's interesting because there's actually quite a few people I've had on this podcast who've never who don't drink alcohol. Yeah. Well, it's an extreme thing to do. And I think that people who get into wild, extreme things, like there's other little like breadcrumbs along the way of like, hey, you might do some kind of some big, interesting, wild things like not drink, you know? I think that's really cool. No coffee. Yeah. I'm I'm pretty impressed. Tea? Mate? <laughs> no, I don't I mean I'll drink like some herbal tea if I'm sick, but that's pretty much it. No Red Bull? <laughs> no, definitely no Red Bull or Monster, whatever that stuff's called. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> you do meditate though, right? Is that a routine you have? Well, you I would have? say that like I, I I would say that my meditation is actually really in my trail running. Mm. Um I, I get a little loopy while I do it. I, I really love that solitude. I, I consider it sort of my moving meditation. I, I have gone through phases where I meditated. I also like was re- raised a Catholic. And so I've had, I've, I've had times where I have a pretty robust prayer life too. I would say now, maybe not so much, but uh, other times definitely more so. Uh, I've dabbled in yoga, but I haven't really gotten the the yoga thing i haven't made that as much of a routine as i know that i should because i know it's so good for me i just don't really do it do you stretch after running i do i do a little warm-up and i do a little stretch yeah and it's funny i'm doing research papers with my students right now and every day where we do work um if it's like a 50 minute work period at the halfway point i take them all outside and we do a quick little breathing and like a sun salutation just to get them recentered. Even though I'm not exactly great about doing that in my own practice, I'm kind of trying to like impose it upon them so that I will prioritize it more in my own life. Mark, you seem like a pretty cool teacher. I think these kids are lucky. So if you could share, you. if you could share one message with the world or have it air written on the sky or flown across on an eco-friendly plane, what would your message to the world be right now? Mine is a mantra that we have in our family. Um, and it's simple. It's we're all in this together. That is like my standby message that I believe so deeply and would love to share with as many people as I can. Well, that's awesome. Mark, I feel like I could talk to you forever, but this podcast is supposed to be the length of a run 
her good jog. <laughs> so this is a good jog right now. I'm sure people listening are pretty excited. I, I really love this. I think you gave some great nuggets. It's going to help a lot of people. Your book, I can't wait for Ryan Gosling to play you. Oh, yeah. And, well, you know. I would just be flattered if people would read the book. Can you when, tell tell where? people, where can we find out more? Is there a book tour? Is there a website? Or should they just so, all get the book? So if you're interested, you can go to my website, which is just marklukacz.com. The book is available at most major bookstores, or at least it will be on May 2nd. Um, you can obviously find out about it online. If you're at my website, you can go see some of my old clips, like my Modern Love piece and an essay that I wrote for Pacific Standard Magazine that helped a lot with the book process and some of the interviews I've done and videos and stuff like that. So that's where, if you're interested, you can just go check it out. Well, I will put all of that in the show notes as well as a link to awesome. buy your book. Mark, thank you cool. so much for sharing your wild ideas on this Shelby, show. Thanks so much for having me. It was just really, really fun to talk to. I hope that I get to go down to San Diego for either a book event or even just for fun and we can go surfing. I would love that. And if you have a book event, we'll get a ton of people to come. Cool. Right on. Awesome. I hope you enjoyed this show. Mark's book is now available on Amazon and we'll have links on where to buy it in the show notes. You can also check him out on his website. He'll be doing a few book talks, so you might be able to see him in person. Thank you again for subscribing. And for those of you who really like this show, you want to show your love, leaving a review on iTunes greatly helps the show. You can also sign up for our email newsletter on wildideasworthliving.com. Next week, we have Brogan Graham of the November Project. That man is full of energy. It's an awesome show. I can't wait to release it. Thank you again, wherever you are in the world. Don't forget, some of the best adventures happen when you follow your wildest ideas. We'll see you next week. <laughs>